This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Public health officials are warning that the COVID-19 pandemic could resurge as autumn turns into winter over much of the United States. Although the number of COVID cases is falling and the number of deaths due to COVID is also falling at even a faster rate, officials warn that restrictions on social interaction are being lifted in many states and the current trends could easily reverse themselves. What's the evidence for these claims? What have we learned about the pandemic from the course it has already taken in Europe and the United States over the past eight months? Should schools remain closed? Should college students remain at home? Should businesses operate only over the internet? These are the questions on everyone's mind as the days grow short and the leaves turn golden. To shed new light on these topics, I have with me on the Education Exchange, Aaron Ben-David, an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Ben-David has prepared a new paper on the effects of the lockdowns that swept across Europe and the United States last spring and summer. And he is here today to share his new evidence with us all. So Dr. Ben-David, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Ben David, in your analysis, you distinguish between two types of restrictions on social interactions that governments have imposed during the course of the pandemic, the less restrictive and the more restrictive. So could you do define those concepts for our listeners? What do you mean by less restrictive? I'll back out just one uh, minute and, and talk about the motivation for this uh, analysis. The, a lot of the, the policy debates that I've been interested in um, focus on the risks and benefits of the various approaches that we take for coronavirus. The pandemic is terrible. You know, it's a terrible disease and it's sweeping across um, many countries. And, um, and so there's, there, there's no easy way um, uh, through this. Um, and so we have to, you know, any any policy decision that we chart is going to have uh, uh, risks and benefits. And uh, one of the the issues that has been of concern to me are the the um, are what's what's happening with the most restrictive uh, interventions and policies that we have had to date, uh, because those are uh, enacted as the most effective way to deal with. Uh, the, the spread of the disease, and at the same time, they are the ones that have the, the uh, highest uh, uh, burden in some ways, both on, uh, on, on directly on things like freedoms and employment, uh, but also a lot of indirect uh, uh, harms about uh, suicidality and, and, and opioid use and vaccination and uh, all sorts of, uh, of consequences of, of the, most, the most severe restrictions. And so, you know, figuring out where how we need to move forward has to take into account uh, the you know the the more holistic picture of of the the, these, the policies effects. Now, I uh, have uh, started looking uh, at the the policies that we have enacted, and as you mentioned, I I split the policies uh, into more restrictive and and less restrictive, and there are two reasons why I do that. One is obviously the more the most restrictive policies. Um, are the ones where we're going to have the the ones that are going to have the greatest uh, effect, both potentially potentially both positive and negative. And so the, you know they're the ones that almost like the highest stakes. And so we need to look at those the most carefully. The second reason is that 
in some ways, I can disentangle the effect of those from other policies. Okay, and so you know, in order to be able to do the research, I have to be able to disentangle, um, you know, say the effect of, uh, of school closures from uh, you know travel bans, and and those are hard to do because they're implemented more or less simultaneously in pretty much all places. Um, and so, and so, what I mean by the most restrictive are really two uh, policies. One is uh, mandatory stay-at-home orders, um, and the other one is the, the mandatory business closures. Um, and the reason I use these two is because uh, these two uh, these two policies were not um, implemented in, in some places that I can use as almost like as, as comparison uh, as comparison sites. Were they used in the United States? Mandatory stay-at-home, mandatory business closures. Is there are there places in the United States where those were imposed? They were imposed more or less in every state in the United States. I don't think there's a single state that never uh, imposed both of these, right? So we, we were all at some point, mandatory stay at home, shelter in place, uh, and mandatory business closures, you know, no, nothing other than essential services like uh, grocery stores um, uh, were allowed to actually have their doors open. And so, you know, so these policies, but I'm not, I'm looking not just in the United States, I'm, I'm looking at 10 countries. So how did you select your 10 countries? That's a very good question. So the, the, um, there were, again, sort of two different uh, pathways that we looked, we wanted to do this. One is I wanted to get as many countries as I possibly could because I didn't want, uh, you know, there to be uh, a, 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 a almost like a preferential uh, uh, selection. So that's one reason. The second reason uh, that I, I wanted, or the second criteria I used for selecting, is that I wanted places where I can, um, where I can get both um, the the an, an understanding of uh, what's what's happened to the spread of the disease, and I'll talk about that more specifically. I want to know, understand what's happened to the spread of the disease uh, in response to the various policies. And so I wanted states that, or I wanted countries that. Had uh, had adequate or had spread of the disease, so that you know it's not. I'm not talking about places like Taiwan, that, where the disease never really took hold in the population. I'm talking about places like um, like Sweden, like France, like Germany, like England, um, where the disease actually spread in the population, and then policies were implemented and and to look at the effect of the policies. And so these were sort of my my criteria. So, you know, to pick the largest number of countries that I could find data on. Um, and uh, and to limit that to those countries that are uh, where the disease actually spread uh, uh, initially to then evaluate the effects of the policies. Well, I noticed that you you included Sweden and in part you included Sweden because they did not impose uh, these mandatory restrictions, these uh, severe restrictions. Uh, but you didn't include Norway or uh, Ireland, uh, uh, Denmark, which are Nordic countries that you might have thought would be natural comparisons. Well, so that's right. So that's exactly right. So uh, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk about those uh, uh, separately. But so let me first take the the latter question about uh, Denmark or Norway. And the reason those were not included is because you know they again you know they implemented lockdowns so or early enough that was before the disease actually spread, and so they managed to very quickly. Um, you never saw the big spread, the big rise in the number of cases that we saw in so many other places. Um, and, and so, you know, those in some ways, I, you know, I couldn't use those as, uh, as, as comparison 
um, you know, for comparative purposes because they never really had the spread of the disease. Um, so they were like Taiwan, you're saying? I, exactly. That, that it's in the same category as Taiwan. And, um, and, then, and then Sweden is exactly the way that I can, uh, that helps me disentangle the effects of more restrictive and less restrictive, right? Because Sweden never implemented mandatory stay at home and never implemented um, uh, mandatory business closures. And so you can, you, what you can see is you can uh, look at what's happened in Sweden and say, well, um, you know, the, the, there's, an, there's a pandemic that's spreading through. We don't know exactly what this pandemic is, you know, is, is really doing because a lot of it is invisible to us. The number of infections is not something we can see. We can just measure uh, some proxy of that. And, um, and so here's a, a pandemic, it's, it's spreading through and there are policies that are implemented and the, the pattern uh, of both of these together um, in Sweden gives us a, a sense of what's happening when you implement less restrictive policies. Um, and so that, that's, an important, uh, uh, that's an important case for us to look at uh, the effects of, of less restrictive policies. Well, couldn't you look within the United States because some states had more restrictive policies than other states or they imposed a lockdown for a longer period of time? Um, have, you, have you explored that possibility? Well, but, but no, no state in the United States uh, avoided these policies altogether. Um, all states had both uh, mandatory stay at home and mandatory business closures at some point. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the question is, you know, uh, did, you know, did these, did these the, the question I'm asking, did these policies, these uh, um, uh, more restrictive policies, did they have an additional benefit or an additional effect beyond what you could see with less restrictive policies, right? And so the way that the, 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 the Swedish model was, we're going to um, give people information and give them guidance and provide general um, uh, uh, you know, sort of um, an encouragement to stay at home as much as you can. Um, we're going to close the high schools, um, but uh, but but beyond that, we're not going to force anything, um, and we're going to let people make their decisions. And so, and you see an effect, right? And you see you see uh, you see, or at least you see what you see as a, a bending of the curve. Um, and and it turns out that the bending of the curve there is in many ways similar to what you see in places that also implemented much more restrictive uh, policies. And so that's, that's and so I, I, you know, in order to disentangle the, the effects of the more restrictive policies, you have to have some places that had them and some places that didn't have them uh, uh, entirely. And, and in, inside the United States, there's no such place. You've hinted at the basic finding here. So why don't I just ask you, what, what do you find when you do this analysis? Exactly, and so um, and so that I'll I'll, um, I'll sort of go into a little bit more detail. And so, um, what uh, you know, we, we have uh, we have ten uh, countries. Two of them never implemented um, the most restrictive policies. It's Sweden, and it's also South Korea uh, that never closed down businesses and never uh, and never implemented mandatory stay-at-home orders. And Sweden. Um, and then we have eight countries that did, um, and uh, most of them are, are European countries and the United States and Iran as well. Uh, and uh, and so then you know when, when we, what we do is we uh, is we use the comparison countries again to sort of give us a sense of of uh, what happens in in the absence of the most restrictive policies, and then we want to see 
in the United States, uh, after you implemented the most restrictive policies, do you see an additional effect, uh, an additional effect in terms of how fast the cases are growing, right? And so uh, the, the, what, what we see is that, you know, as, uh, as people started moving less, uh, going to businesses less, driving less, uh, you know, staying at home more, uh, schools were closed, you do see a bending of the curve. And that makes sense. Uh, but then the question is, once you sort of implement these mandatory uh, orders, do you see an additional effect? And the answer is, you don't see an additional effect in any of the comparisons. No country, none of the eight countries compared to any of uh, the two countries, Sweden or South Korea. So 16 different comparisons. In none of those do you see an additional effect of, uh, of the most restrictive policies. Well, some people might say, okay, but Korea is different because the Koreans are very compliant people. They, they, they follow rules. So these uh, less restrictive policies really had the same effect of the most effective restrictive policies just because they were so willing to go along with what the government asked them to do. So that's the Korean case and the Swedish case, you could argue, well, maybe it's such a rural country, it's not gonna be impacted in the same way as more urban countries are. How do you respond to those concerns? Well, the, you know, the, the, I think that that's always gonna be uh, um, some of those uncertainties that we have in trying to understand why do we have uh, such a different pattern, uh, you know, in, or such a different uh, uh, policy response and, and epidemic pattern in different places. One, um, uh, observation that's very important here is that um, if you look at all countries, not just our study country, but many other countries, you see a very similar rate of decline of the, the, the way that, that the curve has, has bent in any country that had epidemic spread. And you see the, 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 the bending of the curve looks similar. And uh, what that implies is that, uh, is that you know, you have very different policies, but you have a very similar um, you have a very similar epidemic of uh, a pattern. And so yes, I noticed that actually I've been watching this on my you know I, on a regular basis. I check to see which countries are doing what, and they all look pretty much the same. And and that that tends to imply that that the policies themselves, you know, have have not had a, a unique effect. What you have is every time, you know, more or less my hypothesis that I think is more consistent with that data is that you have information spreading around the world and people know a pandemic is coming and you hear about, um, and you hear about, you know, from the government, please stay at home as much as you can, or you have to stay at home. And, you know, we're going to go check your ID if you, uh, if, if you leave home. Um, and in, in any one of those cases, the, the, the distancing that happens, the, the, the reductions in how people sort of, stay close to one another is, is similar or it, 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 is, uh, it, it reduces the, the, what, what happens with transmission of the virus in similar ways. And you end up with, uh, and you end up with these very similar patterns. And so it's not, you know, you don't need a, 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 a mandatory stay at home. Uh, you know, what you need is in some ways is to have uh, adequate um, uh, behavioral response to to what is going on out there, and you can get that from uh, in different places. You get that from the government just saying, "Please stay at home as much as you can," and in some places you get that from um, you know the school closures, and in some places you get it from travel ban. 
Um, and you know, in, 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 in what, what we're seeing is that the, the additional benefit from, uh, from telling people to stay at home is uh, we, we, can't, we can't find any of it. Well, now, some people have suggested that the virus is mutating and is less lethal than it was uh, at various stages. Do you see anything in the data that supports that hypothesis? I think there are other hypotheses that make it more plausible to help us explain why is it that, that the deaths as a portion of the number of cases are coming down. Um, I mean, that's been, that's been one of those observations that make people think that, you know, the, the virus is mutating because we don't see, uh, we don't see a, um, a difference in the death rates based on the, on the uh, virus, uh, on the viral um, mutant type. Um, there are a few things that, that uh, we observe. One is that the people who are infected now are younger than they were back in March and April. And so uh, those who get infected are less likely to die to begin with because they're, you know, the, the younger are less vulnerable than, than older people. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is, is uh, we're, we're testing a lot more. And so we're, you know, we're identifying any close contact, any, um, you know, anybody who's had an exposure, uh, we test them. And so we have a lot more, uh, we're identifying a lot more people. Um, and so when you look at, that's, that's the denominator. And so when you look at that, uh, it looks like the death, the, the death uh, rates are, are coming down. Uh, but that's, a, that's, you know, that's partly an explanation that's due to the, the denominator issue. Um, and so these two, I think, you know, to me, help explain that sort of the, the reduction in, in death rates. That, oh, the, the last thing actually is super important is we're much better at treating the disease. Um, you know, early on, uh, you know, anybody came in and they had a little bit of, of uh, low oxygen and they got intubated. Um, and now uh, what we know to put people on their bellies um, and to give them steroids and to give them antivirals and convalescent plasma um, and to keep them, you know, keep, keep them unintubated, give them supplemental oxygen. And, uh, and, that does, and that does the trick much more than, uh, than it, it, it used to in, in the beginning. And so, and so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're getting much better at, at keeping people you know, alive and, and getting them out of the hospital healthy. Well, one of the reasons why the pandemic caused such uh, a dramatic initial response all over the world, especially in Western Europe and the United States, uh, was because the death rate seemed to be so high. I mean, the, that forecast of 2 million people dying in the United States was one that got the attention of the President of the United States and a lot of other political leaders. Initially, that seems to be hopelessly off. Uh, what, what do you, and then even today, we don't really know how many people are infected out there. And you've done some work in this area too. What, what do you, what do you have to say on that subject? That's right. And so, and, and so this is, again, you know, this is something that we've done a lot of work on and, and we did one of the very early studies that looked at how, how truly widespread the disease is. And that, that matters for a few things. It matters for um, you know, understanding the true number of infections, which is very different from the number of cases. Um, it matters for understanding the, the, how lethal that disease is because, it, you know, it gives you, uh, again, sort of the right denominator for understanding uh, fatality. Um, and it tells you some things about how close are we to what, might you, what you might call sort of herd immunity or to population level uh, uh, immunity. And the question about 
um, you know, what, why is it that it looks like the disease is much less, less fatal than, than initial? I think, you know, early on when that, that happens actually very commonly in 2009, uh, that we had the H1N1 um, uh, almost, um, you know, sort of scare, I would say, because it, it turned out to be really quite benign. Um, but in the, in the very initial phases, it looked like it was killing about 10% of people. And then um, as we understood better about how many people actually were infected, it looked like 1% and then 0.1% and then 0.01% um, as we did, uh, as we really understood how widespread the, 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 the disease spread. And so that was the motivation for doing the same thing now. And in fact, what we found is that the infection is, you know, it, 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 this was in, in April, it was about 50 times more widespread than, than what you'd see from the number of cases. And so that makes a big difference for uh, for, for how you understand the, the fatality, how fatal this disease is. If it's really pretty widespread, then it's less uh, lethal than, than it seems uh, in the beginning. The, the World Health Organization initially said 3%, uh, we estimated 0.2%, so more than tenfold lower. The models, uh, uh, the initial models that, that predicted 2.2 million deaths in the United States, they estimated about 1% uh, in, uh, uh, are gonna die from, from, uh, from among those who are infected. Still, something that if, you know, if, if I knew that there's a disease coming to my neighborhood and 1% and of all those who get it die, that would be, you know, that, that would be very impactful for me. Um, uh, um, but you know, now we're getting to two out of a thousand, uh, that makes quite a difference. And that's, you know, that, 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 that finding has been borne out um, again and again. Some places do have higher, you know, New York, places that have had uh, overwhelmed health systems and had a very high uh, disease burden and the, and the, the epidemic uh, really spread very far and wide um, and hit a lot of nursing homes. Um, uh, you know, they had a much higher fatality rate. Uh, but overall, in, in, you know, sort of globally and sort of here in California, um, it was a substantially lower. So is that where you think it is about at 0.02? Or 0.2%, so two out of a thousand. And so I think that's, you know, that, that seems to be, by now our study has been done in many different places, about a hundred different uh, sites. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if you look at the range, it ranges from well below 0.2 to uh, about 1%. Um, uh, and, uh, but the extremes are sort of in the places, or at least at the high extremes are in the places that you'd think, like in, in Lombardy, in Italy, in Spain, uh, in, in New York. Um, and the very, very low end are places actually that, um, in places like in, in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia that seem to have very widespread disease. Um, and very low mortality. And, and there are a, a host of hypotheses as to why that happens. But nobody has, a, why would that happen? Why would Africa be so fortunate? Yeah, so, so there are a few things. You know, the, the first thing that people speak about is the fact that uh, the, the, you know, there are a lot more young people in Africa. The median age in many African countries is 16. Um, and, uh, and very few people are over the age of 60. And because this disease has such a disproportionate effect on the elderly, um, you know, and in fact, and the young are spared in some ways, that's, you know, that, that's, that's a real blessing with this, this uh, disease is that it, you know, it doesn't affect our children. Um, um, I shouldn't say blessing, but a silver lining. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, in, in, and so in, in places where there's a high, population of young people, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't appear quite as bad. Um, and so that's one thing. The, the other hypothesis is that um, 
we might have, and this is again one of these things that is the science is evolving, but we might have some protection. People have some protection if they've had um, other strains of coronavirus in the past or in the recent past. And uh, what are those other strains of coronavirus? There are strains that cause, uh, various strains that cause the common cold, um, and then some strains that we don't fully understand yet. And, um, and if, uh, you know, we know that, that especially in Asia, there's been a, a, a lot of exposure to other strains of coronavirus. If, those, if that history provides some protection against this coronavirus, then, um, then you would observe, you know, you, you might expect this uh, lower uh, mortality. And that's been, um, you know, that seems to, at this point, it's consistent with what we're seeing in the world. Um, and um, and might explain some of these patterns. Well, what is the implications of all of this for our colleges and for our schools? Uh, I've always thought that to ask little children to stay home from school and with all the negative consequences for their education, for their social emotional development, for their physical well-being, from you know, other potential sources of injury or disease, all of those things seem to be uh, not taken into account when, um, when you decide to shut down the schools because of the concern for the impact this has on the elderly. I, I, think, that's, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, uh, the, um, I mean, it's a complicated issue. And so I, I don't wanna, you know, because there's obviously there's all sorts of, social implications and it's becoming highly politicized and whatnot but i think that that the the, the the downsides of keeping schools and colleges closed on kids have not been appreciated enough uh, to date in the discussions about school um, i think on on the on the on the health side of of uh, of schools and is you know we do know that the the disease that the disease is very largely mild um, and often spares uh, young children under under the age of ten we we often get uh, we we get very few people or relatively fewer people infected and children of all ages if they do get infected it's it's much more likely to be mild um, and it's much more likely to be asymptomatic um, and uh, and you know among the colleges that have opened up. We see cases, we see them getting infected, uh, but we, you know, it's very rare that we see them needing medical care or getting hospitalized. In fact, the handful of uh, students that uh, have, uh, have needed uh, uh, more intensive medical attention, that almost, that's, these are almost the exception that prove the rule that it is very rare um, that, that young people need um, uh, medical attention. And, and, and if we, you know, if we think again about the, the, what the downsides of, uh, of, of keeping these schools closed. I mean, education has enormous implications for health and well-being. Uh, from uh, you know, from I mean, yeah, I don't need to tell this audience probably, but you know, it it it, it is one of those um, areas of of the social sciences that is so well established uh, that that um, you know, I think in, at, at this point, I think it's it's a, it's doing real harm, and and the the benefits are um, I think in at this at this stage um, are really unclear. So they, it, it actually, I'm beginning to notice that in uh, education circles, people no longer are saying the kids are likely to get this disease or suffer badly if they do get it, but they are saying, well, but they're spreaders and, they, and the adults with whom they are working, you know, they'll bring it home to their family, to their grandparents. So 
that they will become a, you know, a force for spreading this disease. Do we have any information on that? You know, so th there's there's um, uh, several studies that um, uh, argue that that kids are much less likely to spread it to adults than the other way around. Uh, there was a, a very detailed uh, study in Iceland uh, that did both uh, genetic sequencing as well as uh, uh, very detailed contact tracing to look at you know a good chunk of the Icelandic population, and they looked at 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 all of these sort of households where you see both a, a, an adult and a, and a child that had the infection um, and try to understand uh, where, you know, who transmitted to whom. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the lead author of that study, he uh, said that, that in, their, in their sample, not, they, they did not find a single instance of a child giving the infection to the adult. It's all been the other way around. Um, a similar uh, study in, uh, not a similar, but a, another study in, in Switzerland that did very careful contact tracing uh, has, uh, has similarly suggested that, that the transmission happens predominantly from adults to kids, not the other way around. Other studies question that, um, or at least uh, provide some evidence that, that, uh, that you know, kids do spread in, in non-trivial uh, rates to adults. Uh, I think that the, the you know we the, this is one of these areas that would be really good to get clarity on. Um, it's one of those areas of uh, of science that I think would be so important because uh, that's exactly the kind of uh, question that that uh, we you know we need to understand for the safety of schools. In in theory, it would make sense that children transmit less to adults. They have uh, the, the, you know the, they have milder disease. They're they're uh, more commonly asymptomatic. We know that asymptomatics uh, transmit less than than people who are very more uh, who are very symptomatic and 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 shed more virus. Um, and so and so you know we, there's there's lots of reasons to believe that children would uh, transmit less to adults. But you know it'd be great to settle that. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the Education uh, Exchange, uh, Dr. Ben David. The study that Dr. Aaron Ben David has uh, just produced uh, identifies the relative impact of less restrictive efforts to uh, increase social distancing and distinguish them from the lockdowns that uh, were used so extensively initially. And he's finding very little evidence that those lockdowns had any impact whatsoever. So thank you, doctor, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a podcast every Monday noon, Eastern time on the Education Next website.